Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We are in the book of, where are we at church? Yeah, we're in the book of Acts still for a few more weeks. We're in Acts chapter 22, if you'd open your Bibles there. If you have a Bible app, you can turn there as well. And in the Bible app, there's a section called events. And if you go to the events section, you should see some notes populate that'll help you follow along with today's message. We're in Acts chapter number 22. And the book of Acts, there in your notes, kind of explains to us how God directs the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world through a spirit-empowered church despite internal obstacles and external opposition. This last portion of Acts, we're in Acts 22. How many, know, how many of you know how many uh, chapters there are on the book of Acts? 28. This is a great book of the Bible that you could read in one month. Uh, 28 chapters, just read one chapter a month. And uh, I did that for a whole year. I, I read through Acts uh, a few years ago. Uh, every month I read through it. And every month when I would read through it, you would just see different parts of Acts being highlighted as you read it and the Holy Spirit moves in your heart. But we have 28 chapters. We're in Acts chapter 22. We have about six more chapters to go. Um, And I forget when we're going to end. I want to say by the end of July, we should be done. Right around there, by the end of July. And so we have a few weeks left to look at. Today's message is entitled this, Take Courage. Everyone say those words take courage. Now, if someone's asking you to take courage, if they're asking you to grab a hold of courage, buckle up because you're about to be in a situation where you need courage, right? Um, If someone walks, uh, if you walk into someone's home for dinner and as you walk in, they said, don't worry, don't worry, take courage, come on in, everything's going to be all right. (laughs) Can I be honest with you? I'm going to wonder why I'm continuing to walk in, right? If you get into someone's car, and you get in, and, uh, and you sit in the passenger seat, and they just put your, their hand on your knee and say, don't worry, it's going to be all right. <laughs> when you hear these words, there's a reason why you're getting these words, right? It's interesting, because in the New Testament, the, that phrase, take courage, we won't look at the instances, but the words, take courage, are spoken five times, and every single time, it's by Jesus, And every single time he's doing it for a very specific reason, take courage. One of those instances is in Acts chapter 23, which we'll get to in a few moments. But why would Paul need courage in Acts chapter 22? Well, there's a mob out to get him, right? This is getting to be um, rinse and repeat for Paul, right? This happens all the time with Paul, but this time it's a little bit more serious. The mob is ready to kill him. He was in Ephesus. He departed Ephesus, and by way of many countries, or many countries, many cities, he's come to Jerusalem. The mob is ready. He's given an opportunity to speak to the mob, and he makes his defense by sharing his story. And that's going to be a theme for the next few weeks about what it looks like for you to share your story. But Paul makes his defense by sharing his story, and now we pick it up and verse 22, up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, dot, 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 we'll get to verse 24 in a moment. Up until this point, uh, what what had bothered them so much about the story he was sharing. 
Well, if you remember, he just left off with this portion where Jesus comes to Paul and explains to Paul, you will be carrying the message of the gospel to Gentiles. Now, Gentiles were the outsiders. When you see Gentiles, particularly in the New Testament, you should think of yourself outsiders. The Jewish people were the insiders. They were God's people. They were the children of Israel. And for generations, you had to be Jewish in order to earn favor with God. And now in the New Testament, everything changes. Everything uh, is transformed. And all of a sudden, outsiders are now welcome into the faith And this was a big deal. And so when the Jewish people heard that Paul's mission was to share the good news with Gentiles, all of a sudden, this is their reaction. They raised their voices. They said, away with him, not from Jerusalem, but from this earth. In other words, let's kill him. They were outraged at the thought that God's salvation could be freely given to anyone. They could not stand the idea that God might save Jews and Gentiles alike in the same way. What he was saying is this. There is a way to God. There's a way to earn favor with God. There's a way to have access to God. And the way to God is through Jesus Christ, no matter who you are. We come to God just as we are, whether we're Jews, whether we're Gentiles. We come just as we are, and further, we come to God through Jesus Christ. This was a big deal. You didn't have to come through Jesus Christ through your tradition, through your, uh, through your customs, through your heritage, through your lineage. And this is the message of Jesus that he preached, that Paul preached, that you can come to God just as you are, whether you're a Jew a Gentile, an insider, an outsider, a foreigner, if you're uh, in the highest places in society, if you're in the lowest places in society, if you were rich or poor, you could come to God, and in coming to God, you would do so through Jesus Christ. Now, these Jews did not have a problem with Gentiles becoming Jews. There was no issue with them for that. But to say to these Gentiles that you could come in the same manner that Jews would come, that they were both equal, this is what they had a problem with. Verse 24, the tribunal ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Now again, this must have been a strange sight for the Roman commander. He saw the crowd have... Uh, Paul had the crowd's attention and now suddenly they erupted into a riot and when it was explained to them he must have thought it was absurd and really offensive because he himself is a Roman commander right so all this rioting springing out of the hatred of Gentiles people just like the commander and so now he says we need to figure out what's going on by the way from now to the end of the book of, of, of Acts Paul is in Roman custody He's in prison for the rest of the book of Acts. He's in prison or he's in uh, some kind of house arrest. We'll talk about that in later chapters. But for the rest of the book of Acts, he's imprisoned. And yet the book doesn't end 
We continue to tell his story because for the duration of his life, Paul would still be able to do so much for the cause of Christ. It leads us to our second point quickly. Our circumstances do not define our effectiveness or usefulness as a witness of Jesus Christ. In fact, let's say that together. Ready, begin. Our circumstances do not define our effectiveness or usefulness as a witness of Jesus Christ. As far as this book was concerned, this was the end of his time as a free man. And though not the end of his witness or usefulness to God or God's people. His effectiveness, his usefulness was not hindered by circumstances. I feel like this is a message we need to hear this morning. That your circumstances do not define whether or not you can be a useful witness for Jesus Christ. Your circumstances do not define or prohibit or hinder your ability to be effective or useful for the kingdom of God. And so if you're here today or you're watching this morning and you say, well, Daniel, you don't know my resume. You don't know what I've done in life. And if you were to look at my resume, you would see I'm not fit for the kingdom. You might say to yourself, you don't understand, Daniel, the disappointments I've had in my life, the areas in my life where God has disappointed me or I have disappointed God. You might say to yourself, you understand my lineage. You don't know who my parents were. You don't know who my grandparents were. Daniel, you don't know the addictions I've struggled with. You don't understand the, the, daily, uh, the daily struggles I have with these addictions that I have in my life. You might say, Daniel, you don't understand my shortcomings. And what I'm here to say is for every instance that you say you don't understand this, there is scripture that implores us to understand that those circumstances are temporary and we serve a God who has a kingdom that's eternal. And so your shortcomings, your disappointments, the resume, your record, however you want to define it, they do not limit your effectiveness or your, your, your ability to be uh, useful in the kingdom of God. You know what affects it? Our obedience. Now your, willing, your willingness to obey God definitely affects your witness. Your willingness to exercise humility in your life, that will affect your usefulness. But don't you dare come to the throne of Jesus and say, God, I have a lot of baggage for you. Because that's what the cross is for. The cross is designed there to free us from those, those, those guilts, those shames, that sin, that addiction, uh, whatever, is, whatever baggage you're bringing. And don't pretend to say with your life, um, the cross is too, isn't big enough to handle my baggage. Yeah. Our circumstances, they don't hinder our witness. But our obedience or our willingness to obey might. Uh, verse 25, we continue the story. When they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? So they stretched him out for the whips. This is a practice of uh, interrogation. They were going to flog him, scourge him, beat him until he was willing to give witness. 
Now, this was not the normal Jewish flogging, which was bad enough, but from the hands of the Romans, it was beating so severe that in some cases it resulted in the death of the victim. This was brutal, yet customary, but here's the caveat, only for people who were not Roman citizens. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. Paul had his hands tied with leather straps, so his hands joined around a wooden post. His back would be totally exposed. And in that moment, they were getting ready to scourge, to flog, to beat him into obedience or submission. And he was ready, but when his citizenship became known, the reaction was immediate because it was a serious violation of Roman rights to proceed to even bind a Roman citizen without due process. So verse 27, so the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. Verse 29, so they were about to examine him, withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had, been, that he had bound him. You say they just took Paul's word for it? Well, uh, the penalty for lying about one's citizenship was extreme, and it was not common practice in this setting for people to lie about their citizenship. Paul was an extremely rare individual. It was uncommon to find such an educated, intelligent, devout Jew who was also a Roman citizen. Do you see how God has prepared his background for such a time as this? Here is Paul, and he is a Jew, but he has this Roman background. A Roman would be considered a Gentile. So he's a Jew with Gentile citizenship. He thought when he was on the road to Damascus that his primary goal in life after that would be to preach the gospel to Jewish people because he was raised by Jews. He was educated by Gamaliel. He had all the right bloodlines, and yet God embedded into him a promise that said, you are going to serve, you're going to preach Gentiles with this with this background that you had. He had this unique background, a very special set of circumstances, and I'm here to tell you, God wants to use your unique background to use you in a very special way. Our circumstances do not define our effectiveness or usefulness as a witness of Jesus Christ. Your background, though, your story, your experiences are the reason every person should know your story. Every person that you're around should get a sense of why Sunday mornings you're in church. Why do you have this new pursuit in your life where you're following Jesus? For those of you who are lifelong Christians or it feels like a lifelong, the people around you should know your story. Because God has given you unique backgrounds, experiences, and expertise that have shaped the way that you live, and there will come a day where your story makes sense for the person you're sharing it with because they have similarities in your story. And when there's similarities in people's story, all of a sudden you can point them to a savior. Um... I've heard this said this way, that God will use your mess to bring people to his message. And you think, man, the addictions that I have faced. Well, I firmly believe as you submit 
your life to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit empowers you to, to overcome those addictions and give you the resources and the helps and the groups to do that, that there will come a day in your life, maybe not right away, maybe not uh, the next day, maybe not the next week. It took Paul 20 years. It might take a quite a significant amount of time, but God will bring someone in your path and all of a sudden, as you share your story with them, you get to encourage them on their journey through that same mess. This is how it works. One of the beautiful things I see in, my ch- in our church is when, um, when someone goes through something very uh, difficult and unique, and they walk with that for a few months and a few years, and someone else walks through something similar, that person who has already walked ahead instinctively, without direction, without coaching, comes alongside this person. And doesn't tell them what to do. They just do this. They come right up to them and they just grab their hand or they put their arm around the shoulder and say, I'm just going to walk with you for a little bit. And when you're ready, I'm going to share my story. And in sharing their story now, now the one person gets to encourage the other. And now all of a sudden we're doing this together. Your circumstances don't define your effectiveness or usefulness. Your obedience to Jesus Christ does. But God has gifted you these unique backgrounds, experiences in such a way that the areas of your life seem like such a mess will be part of the way God reveals his message to others. Now, knowing what he knew about Paul, the commander was very concerned for his own sake. They had just illegally bound and almost flogged a Roman citizen. Verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. The Roman commander seems to be a fair and upstanding man at this point. He doesn't know the details about the dispute between Paul and the religious leaders. Paul received what he probably thought of as a dramatic second chance. The opportunity to preach to the mob on the temple ended in another riot, but now he is uh, destined to speak before the council, the Sanhedrin. Paul would logically think this was another opportunity for a lifetime. Uh, I don't have it on your slides, but this is what it said about Paul in Acts 19. These are Jesus' words. It says this, Paul was a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So way back in Acts 9, 20 years ago, God is saying this about Paul. He's a chosen vessel. He's going to speak to Gentiles. He's going to speak to kings. And he's going to speak to the children of Israel. We have seen him speak to the children of Israel, to the Gentiles. And now we see come to fruition He is speaking in front of kings. Now, I bet when Paul heard this, he probably thought he would get a special invitation by the rulers and authorities. I'm sure he thought there would be a banquet in his honor. I'm sure they thought there would be a large uh, festival of sorts to honor Paul and to welcome him and to speak. I don't think Paul ever thought he was going to do this while bound, while imprisoned. Could you imagine if, um, if God just told you the details of the next 20 years of your life? terrifying especially if he only chose to give you parts of it right um paul knew the general plan but just like us he didn't know how it would all work out 
Uh, I was listening to a sermon by A.J. Swoboda this morning. He's a professor at Bushnell and an author. He's going to be with us in November speaking for us. But he said this, we love God's sovereignty, but we hate his timing. Right? We love God's sovereignty. In other words, the, the principle that, 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 that God's timeline is his own, that he's sovereign, that he makes decisions as he would, and that the stars and the sky obey him, and that all creation submits to his authority, and that he doesn't need a reason for doing anything that he does. We love the sovereignty of God. Uh, we just hate his timing. We hate his timing in our life. Here's Paul, and 20 years ago he hears, you're going to speak to the Jews? Well, that's great. I'm Jew. I I can do that. I can speak to them. I can tell them about Jesus. That sounds good. You're going to speak to Gentiles? Oh, this is great. I'm a Roman citizen. I understand the culture. I was raised in it. I can speak to them. You're going to be speaking to kings? I'm going to speak to kings? This is fantastic. I'm going to hold court with the brightest minds, with the highest political powers. Could you imagine if God said, yeah, in every town you go to, when you speak to Jews, they're going to run you out of town under threat of death. Every single time you you try to speak to Gentiles, there's going to be a mob and it's going to erupt. In fact, you're never going to put roots down anywhere in your life from this point forward because you're going to be on the move constantly. The one place you are going to spend roots, you're going to spend two years there and then leave. The longest place you'll ever live, Paul, is for two years while you're ministering. And when you do go back home to Jerusalem, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to face the last mob and riot you ever face. It's the last one because you're going to be in prison for the rest of your life. Yeah, we don't understand God's timing. We don't understand his sovereignty. But all of this works together for his good, and this is why it becomes so important not to be shaped by our feelings, because if we're shaped by our feelings, the temporary circumstances of our life will tear us down. It's important to embrace our feelings, to call them out for what they are, but to hold on to things that never change, the truth that never changes. Now here's Paul. He has another opportunity to win Israel to Jesus and perhaps a better opportunity to speak to them. Chapter 23, let's look at it. Looking intently at the council, Paul said this, Brothers, I live my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. What he's saying is that he has responded to his conscience whenever it has pricked him. And when he has done wrong, he has said things right. Verse 2, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mount. It's important to know this is a different Ananias than the one that partnered with Paul in Acts chapter 9 and 10. This is a different Ananias. He was a high priest. He was well known for his greed, by the way. Um, Ananias stole for himself ties that belonged to the common priest. It's recorded in history. So this is a real person that existed. This is the high priest. It's a different one than the one that embraced uh, Paul back in Acts 9 and 10. And he's known for his greed. This is the man who just ordered people to strike him in the mouth. This is Paul's response. How dare you? It's not what he says, but it's what it feels like. Verse 3, Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Strong words from Paul. 
What he's saying there in verse 3 about the whitewashed wall, the man who commanded that a defenseless man be punched in the face was a whitewashed wall. In other words, it was a white veneer of purity covering obvious corruption. Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's priest? God's high priest. There's some cultural nuance here. Um, Of course, he shouldn't speak this way to the high priest, but according to Jewish tradition and Jewish law, this was uh, very uncouth behavior of someone to speak against the high priest this way. And so Paul defends himself and says, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. It is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Verse 6, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Paul's distracting them now. It is clear that preaching the message of Jesus Christ has turned their heads on. Uh, they, they, they've just gone completely sour. They've gotten completely mad. They're enraged. Paul now sees the audience and he realizes, okay, some of them are Pharisees. Some of them are Sadducees. I'm going to create a divide against them so maybe they'll forget they're angry at me. By the way, not a bad strategy. If you ever find yourself in this position, this is not a bad strategy. If you find yourself in position, by the way, you've had a horribly bad day. Um, Paul seems to have read the audience. His, his strategy is to divide the Sanhedrin around party lines. And the one issue, the one subject that would get the Pharisees and the Sadducees to divide and arrest their attention was the claim of a resurrected Jesus. So, verse 7, when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Uh, Part of their divide theologically is the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in an afterlife, um, and the Pharisees did, and that's what separated them, among other things. Verse 9, then a great clamor arose. I was studying this all week, and every single time I said this verse, there arose such a clamor. (laughs) Right? Some of you will get that later. (laughs) Verse 9, there arose such a clamor, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Again, the Sadducees were theological uh, liberals in their day. They denied the reality of life after death and the concept of resurrection. Pharisees, theologically in this area, were far more conservative. They were likely more to find agreement with Paul, being the more um, they adhered to the, the, the Torah and the scriptures they had at that time. And usually they were bitter enemies, but for some reason, prior to this dissension that Paul exposed, they were able to join forces for this common interest in executing and get rid of Paul. We continue with the story, verse 10. When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring, them, bring him into the barracks. So the commander removes Paul for his own safety and left him in custody in the barracks. Um, now, Paul's strategy was successful, wouldn't you say? Yeah, the strategy was this. 
this is not going well. I need to divide their attention and maybe get their attention off of me. So he does so. They become, to be, uh, they become um, it says, when the dissension became violent, right? So when all of a sudden uh, fists are being clenched and, and who knows what that crowd would have looked like, but this, this ruling party, the Sanhedrin, that's supposed to execute judgment on Paul are now physically violent with one another. Paul's like, check please. I'm going to make my exit now. The way that he makes his exit is probably not the most desirous for Paul. Um, Look at what they did, right? They commanded the soldiers to go down, take them away from him by force, and they bring them into the barracks. What do we know about Paul? Let's just review for a few moments, okay? And then we're going to read verse 11. Here's Paul. He's Jewish by blood. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says in Philippians. Um, Concerning the law, he was zealous. He understood, probably had memorized the law at a very young age. Knew all the ins and outs. Knew it to such a point that anyone that had disagreed with any portion of the law, he was zealous in defending the law. Along comes Jesus and his followers. Along comes these people who are identified as the ones that are, uh, that are in the way, right? They follow the way of Jesus. And all of a sudden, everything that Jesus teaches seems contrary to the law. In fact, Jesus would have to defend himself in the, uh, in the New Testament by saying these words. I didn't come to destroy this law, but to fulfill it. And here's Paul. And now everything he knows is being threatened. Everything he put his faith in is being threatened. Everything that he uh, built his life on is being threatened. By the way, you're going to come to that point in your life one day when the things that you have put faith in, if they're temporary things, where the foundations of that are simply going to crumble underneath you. And Paul, in response to that crumbling of his of his world where the law now is being attacked and now people are leaving the Jewish faith in order to become Gentiles. When this is happening, Paul becomes even more zealous, right? Starts going door to door. He starts breathing threatenings, the Bible says, to those who are following Jesus. And in doing so, he finds his way on the way to Damascus one day. The church is exploding. The church is growing. And on the way to Damascus, he's blinded by a light. He has this encounter with Jesus that changes the course of his life. He's blinded. He submits to Jesus. He submits to God. And he goes away in hiding for a while, basically. He goes with Ananias. Ananias hears from God, and God says, Ananias, um, there's a guy named Saul who needs your help. Great God. I just, which Saul, by the way? There's a few Sauls I know, and I'm really hoping it's not the one I thinking of. God says, yeah, that's the one. And Ananias, like a couple of times, it's beautiful in Acts 8 or 9, I can't remember, he says, yeah, again, love to obey you, happy to do so. Again, is this this Saul who is literally against everything we believe in? Same Saul, I want you to go be with him. Ananias comes alongside him, encourages him. Later along, Barnabas does. 
as he begins his ministry years later, every time he goes to a city, he is thrown out. Every time he goes to the Jewish people, they can't understand that Paul, a Jew, is asking them to consider leaving their traditions in order to follow Jesus. He does all this, and all he ever wants to do is preach the gospel to his Jewish brothers and sisters, but it's increasingly apparent to him that God has called him to the Gentiles. So he embraces that, and he goes and he pursues telling people uh, who are outsiders, people who would normally not hear about the goodness of God, he goes and he starts sharing the gospel with them. And now it's not bad enough that the Jews didn't like him. Now he's upsetting every society he walks into. He goes to Ephesus, and Ephesus must have been a breath of fresh air for Paul. All of a sudden, he's able to put roots down at least a little bit. Spends a couple years there encouraging disciples, strengthening them, giving them guidance. Ephesus was a great church that that was going to have strong leadership because of the way Paul invested in them. He gets the sense from the Holy Spirit that he should leave. And all of his disciples said, Paul, we don't get the same sense. In fact, if you go back to Jerusalem, it's not going to be good. Agabus, remember Agabus? Agabus comes to Paul and said, Paul, he takes a belt and he binds his feet, he binds his hands, and he's sitting there on the floor bound with his legs and with his arms because in Jewish custom, when you had an important message to share, you demonstrated it, you just didn't say it. So he's there bound on the floor and he says, if you go to Jerusalem, this is your fate. And Paul says, yeah, that might be true, but the Holy Spirit's leading me there, so I'm going to go. He comes to Jerusalem, and the scene that we just have witnessed unfolds. People are divided. The mob is um, forced the they forced the Romans to break their own laws. They've arrested him. They're threatening to beat him without due process, which is a big no-no. Paul thinks up this scheme to take their attention off of him. And in doing so, the the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees are now violently going at one another. And because of the commotion, they say, let's get Paul, let's get him out of here. And Paul thinks, I don't know what's next, but at least I've escaped that. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify, so you must testify also in Rome. I want you to think about what time of day did the Lord visit him? The following night. Here's Paul in the middle of the night. Paul has had a few restless nights before, haven't we? Seen? Here's his restless night, and that must have been difficult. His heart's longing for the salvation of his Jewish brothers and sisters. And he had two great opportunities to preach the gospel, and nothing came of it. It would be no surprise if Paul started to blame himself for the missed opportunity. And it could be said that his reaction to the punch commanded by the high priest kind of changed everything. And all of a sudden, Paul's recounting his steps and recounting his words and saying, if only I had done something just a little bit different. I think it's beautiful that it was in the night that the Lord stood by him. It was in the darkness of that night that Jesus came by to Paul and stood with him. We're going to find ourselves in the middle of the night one day. You might be in the middle of your night right now. And, and there's a couple of 
reminders I think God wants us to hear in this. And one is this, God will stand with you in your night. There's a story about uh, John Bunyan. Uh, Bunyan was the author of uh, Pilgrim's Progress and a number of works. He was a great follower of Jesus Christ. He was in jail, imprisoned one day, and a man visited him and said these words, Friend, the Lord sent me to you, and I've been looking in half of the prisons of England for you. And John replied, I don't think the Lord sent me to you, because if he had, you would have come here first. Because he's known where I've been this whole time. God knows where you are today, and even if you are hiding it from everyone else, God knows where you are. So if you're in the the middle of your night, let me encourage you with this. The Lord wants to stand with you, and he's breathing these words, take courage. Grab a hold of it. You have to grab a hold of courage. Embrace it. Receive it. Take courage. It's going to how you're going to get through the rest of this night. Most of the time when we find ourselves in the middle of the night, you know what we pray for? We pray for daylight. Most of the times when we find ourselves in a situation, even a health diagnosis, when we find ourselves in a relationship diagnosis, our diagnosis, a relationship crisis, when we find ourselves in tension, when we find ourselves in that place, the natural prayer for us is this, Lord, remove this from my life. Lord, take this situation and remove it. The relationship tension that I have, remove it. This health diagnosis that someone is facing, remove it. Um, whatever we're going through, the struggle, uh, the struggle with our own uh, processing of something that happened years ago, we're asking the Lord, we want to remove it. We're, we're asking God for deliverance of that moment. And what God is most likely going to provide for you is deliverance of your heart so that you could walk through that moment. Because he wants to walk with you on it. Um, there, there's something that happens in our, motion, in our mind. There's something that happens in our heart where if we don't feel like God will remove something from our life, we're destined to stay in that position alone. And what God wants you to see this morning is this. He just wants to stand with you in that moment with you so that you can walk through it together. Psalms 23 says this, uh, yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? And in the very next verses, he says, your rod and your staff are with me. Uh, he doesn't promise to lead you to the valley of the shadow of death. He promises to lead us through the valley. It doesn't mean that God brings us to the brink of crisis in our life and then says, take courage, slaps us on the rear and expects us to go through. I'll see you on the other side. Now, God says this, I'm going to lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, here, come with me. Let's do this together. Take courage. You know what I believe take courage is really meaning? Take a hold of me. I am your courage. I am your strength. I am your presence. Take hold of me. We're going to do this together. Now, Paul could have felt like a failure, by the way, but God says some interesting words. John, will you go back one slide and show us verse 11 again, please? It says this, The following night the Lord stood by with him and said, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. Where is he at right now? He's in Jerusalem, right? And then he says this, You also must testify in Rome. The end of the story for Paul would not be written for several chapters in the book of Acts. 
He's going to make his way to Rome because Jesus knows that there is still more for us to do while we're still here. He absolutely does. Anyone can be a good cheer when everything is great, by the way. It takes a real crisis for us to embrace courage. It takes a real crisis for us to embrace the moments where we have to take a hold of his very hand. Now, here's the thing. Paul could have been disappointed by what happened in Jerusalem, but God gives him a little bit of taste and says this, you're also going to testify me in Rome. There was more for Paul to do. There was more work for him to do. There was more people for him to bring to Christ. There was more ways for him to be glorified. There was more ways to, for Paul to pray. There was more ways for him to serve his people. There was more hungry people to be fed. There were more saints for him to encourage. Do you know where we get the book of Philippians on joy from? Paul's time in prison. Do we know we, where Paul strengthened much of the disciples through letter writing, through correspondence happened during prison? The promise of more work to do was also a promise of God that there would be continued protection. Paul had to live until he had finished his course. God had appointed him. And this was why it was so important for Paul to take courage this morning. We come to Jesus as we are. And when we come to Jesus, we must do so through Jesus Christ. To come to God means to come to Jesus Christ. You know, there's a world that is hurting, that desperately wants to know God's presence, but are unable to do so because they refuse to embrace who Jesus Christ is. Tim Keller passed away this weekend. I believe on Friday morning, Tim Keller passed away. Tim Keller was a pastor in New York City and had a, had a large, um, a, a faithful is the word I'm looking for, for a long time a faithful work. Libby and I are going through one of the books he read as our morning devotion through the book of Proverbs. Tim Keller said this, he said this, it's impossible for anyone to meet Jesus and remain indifferent. And that's because Jesus changes everything. And in our lives, if we're going to come to God, we must do, through, do so through Jesus Christ. In our circumstances that we'll face in our life, they do not define our effectiveness or usefulness as a witness of Jesus Christ. It is my encouragement to you to embrace the story that you are living. Embrace the resume, embrace the shortcomings, embrace the brokenness, embrace whatever God has delivered you from, because there will be a moment in your life where you get to share your story and someone will be encouraged and they will come to Jesus because of your story, because this is how the gospel works. And it was in the darkness of that night that Jesus came to Paul and stood by him and said these words, take courage. In other words, hold on to me. Grab a hold of courage. I'm your strength. I am the source of courage. I am the source of everything you need in your life. So in the middle of your night, when you don't know what's coming next, in the middle of your night where you just feel like you escaped death itself, in the middle of your night, church, whatever the night looks like for you, in the middle of the relationship crisis, in the middle of your finances, in the middle of your, the darkness, in the middle of your, your depression, in the middle of whatever you might be going through, take hold, take courage, grab hold of who Jesus is, remember where your strength comes from. Let's bow for a word of prayer this morning. Father, as we consider the life of Paul and we think about Paul being arrested and we think about his life seemingly, his story seemingly coming to an end, we're so encouraged that his story does not end here. His usefulness, his effectiveness as a witness does not end while he is bound. In fact, it further flourishes, Lord. 
So, Father, I feel like there's families right now that feel like they're being bound by the temporary circumstances of their life. They're bound by whatever is grabbing a hold of them. They're, gra- they're bound by hopelessness. They're bound with sickness. They're bound by the temporary uh, circumstances of this life. And for whatever reason, the temptation in our life, Lord, right now, while we're being bound, is to simply put pause on our faith. Because we think, well, this is not the right time for me to be a witness. I can't be effective right now. I can't be, I just got to get through this. I just got to get through this moment. I just got to get through this season. And on the other side of it, I will hit resume. I'll hit, uh, I'll hit play and I'll come back to my faith. But for right now, I just need to buckle up and I just need to hold on because what I'm going through right now is so difficult. Um, I, just, I just need to focus there. Father, would you release us from that kind of thinking? Would you release us from that kind of um, flawed thinking that in the most difficult moments of our life, that the most effective thing to do is to build a silo, to isolate, and to do it on our own. Would you take that kind of thinking away from our mind? And in the moments where we are bound by our circumstances, would you give us the boldness and the courage to further lean into our faith, to further lean into relationships, to further lean into our walk with you, knowing that That's how we get through those moments. Father, for those who have lived that mess in their life, I pray that this week you would put people in their life that need to hear their story and share their message of who Jesus is. Put people in our life this week, Lord. Tomorrow at work, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, as we head into next week and wherever we be, wherever we might be in that moment, would you put people in our life that need to hear our story? And Holy Spirit, would you talk directly to us? Would you yell at us if need be? But Lord, would we be willing to listen to your voice when you simply say, now's the time, share your story. It was in the middle of that night that you came alongside Paul and said, take courage. So Father, in the middle of the night for our church, for those watching online right now or those listening on the podcast later this week, however they're consuming this, Father, I pray that you would give us courage in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.